FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic, and um, I'll be talking to my colleague, uh, Dr. Rob McBain, who is uh, Director of Vascular Medicine, but prior to that, uh, was Director of the Thrombophilia Clinic for the last 10 years, and Rob, um, welcome to Heart.org. Thank and, you. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, what we're going to talk about is the new anticoagulants, uh, or the new alternatives to vitamin K antagonists. So warfarin, warfarin's reigned supreme for, what, 56 years, Rob? And we now have, I guess, three alternatives uh, tested in trials. So what I'd like to do in the initially is let's just go through the three drugs that have gone through the randomized trials and then we'll talk about the overall how they fit into the spectrum of management but what about dubigatran well dubigatran uh, the, the clearly the first of the uh, of the novel agents is uh is quite attractive uh, i think because of the fact that it inhibits uh, as a small molecule inhibits uh, thrombin which i think we would all agree is sort of the center if you will of the coagulation world um, everything goes through thrombin, and thrombin is uh, not only a big player with regards to clotting fibrinogen and and uh, uh, stimulating its own production, but arguably the the biggest and most potent of the agonists of platelets. So I think the f if if one was to design a target for uh, anticoagulation, it, certainly thrombin would be the central target. It would be the the ideal. Uh, and the most logical place to start. Uh, I must say, I, I, I have a uh, disclosure, and that is I've never been able to remember the coagulation <laughs> cascade for more than an hour at a time, but you're in that field, and I'll take your word for it, that yeah. uh, thrombin is an attractive target, and, and it, it was a positive trial. And a positive trial. In fact, several positive trials. I think we, I think that uh, one can um, uh, uh, recognize that uh, dabigatran as a as a direct thrombin inhibitor has has a, a very attractive uh, uh, future, both for atrial fibrillation, but I think also for non uh, for uh, venous thromboembolism as well. I think for this discussion we'll, we'll stick on atrial fibrillation because there's, there's quite <laughs> enough there. There's plenty to talk about with atrial and, fibrillation. And dabigatran in the RELY trial. Um, uh, demonstrated efficacy for stroke and thromboembolism, mm -hmm. uh, reduced intracranial hemorrhage, reduced bleeding, but subsequently there was a paper that came out and said that in people over the age of 75, there is definitely an increase in bleeding even though not intracranial bleeding. Yes, and, and the FDA has recently uh, recognized that um, in patients who are over the age of 75, particularly in their 80s, uh, there, the adverse outcomes for these patients is significantly uh, higher. In fact, uh, when compared with warfarin, this is, uh, I think, a vulnerable uh, population of patients. And so uh, I think for those individuals who are older, uh, it's a drug that we should uh, use with caution. In addition, I think uh, we should also consider uh, renal impairment as a big contributor to our decision-making. And um, I simply don't give it in people with severe renal function. I know we have a dose of 75 milligrams BID advocated by the FDA. I just play safe. I mean, one of the problems with these drugs, I guess, is you can assess an anticoagulant effect, but you cannot quantitate it, right? I exactly. mean, you can do a number of uh, 
clotting, measure a number of clotting parameters that will tell you that you have an effect, but they won't tell you how much of an effect you have. Yeah, and they won't, uh, neither will they be able to assign efficacy, uh, nor will they be able to predict safety. And so, um, ideally, we would have a clotting assay much like the INR, which we could use for patients receiving dabigatran, but that just isn't the case currently. And of course, I mean, the drugs are being brought out, and and, um, one of the uh, theoretical great advantages of the drug is you don't have to measure INR. So it's a self-defeating objective, really, isn't it? So briefly, rivaroxaban. So rivaroxaban, another, um, so if one were to take the next step beyond uh, uh, impairing or inhibiting thrombin, uh, factor 10 would make good sense. Uh, Factor 10, uh, without factor 10, of course, you have no activation of prothrombin, and uh, factor 10 uh, as the as the uh, central converging uh, point of both the uh, intrinsic and extrinsic coagulation uh, cascade uh, makes sense to target. And so Rivaroxaban... This was the rocket trial. This is the rocket trial, which, uh, which also was a very positive trial and, uh, and in fact, uh, looked good in patients with atrial fibrillation. But would it be reasonable mind. to say it was a little less positive? Uh, I mean, there was no efficacy. It was just less bleeding. Yeah, now, non-inferior, I think, was, it was what non-inferior. Came to. Uh, it was non-inferior when it came to the endpoints of stroke and systemic embolism. There was less intracranial bleeding and less overall bleeding. Now, do you think that the once-a-day dose, that that may be the issue, that, it, that, that perhaps it should have been a twice-a-day, or do you agree with the... I think, uh, yeah, great question. And I think uh, with the long half-life of these drugs, uh, once a day does make sense to me. For rivaroxaban. For, for rivaroxaban is right, twice a day. Right, clearly twice a day. But uh, but rivaroxaban once a day, I think, makes sense. I think, uh, one, and so several individuals have asked to compare these two drugs and to and to predict the winner of rivaroxaban versus uh, dabigatran in patients with atrial fibrillation. I, and I simply don't think that you can do that because although the trials uh, trial design was similar, uh, the patient population was quite different. The, uh, the risk uh, in the patients who were in the rocket AF was, was significantly, or I, I shouldn't say the word significantly, but seemed to be higher uh, I think compared it was. to I the mean, uh, trial. I think it was. People in the rocket trial were much older. They had a CHAD score of three or four. Yep. I think it's comparing apples with oranges, and I think it's dangerous to Absolutely. draw comparisons. And I know we're not going to get the trials because there's no incentive to do the trials unless... Uh, a neutral body like NHLBI want to do it. Now, those are the two contenders, but there is a, a third waiting in waiting in the in the, in the, in, the, in the wings that hasn't yet been approved, but is being considered for approval, and that is a Pixaban. And the Aristotle trial, and I confess I, I I've been involved with that trial for the last uh, five or six years, but that was a very very impressive outcome for a Pixaban. Uh, to me, if I had to choose the winner of the th- three of these agents, uh, Apixaban looks very attractive on paper. Um, there's the Aristotle trial, but also there's the Averroes trial, uh, which compared uh, Apixaban to aspirin, uh, showing uh, uh, better efficacy with very similar bleeding rates. And so um, I think that uh, Apixaban uh, is a, also a very attractive drug yeah. in this arena. What we're not going to do here is talk about acute coronary syndromes where a pixaban, in fact, uh, was involved in part of a negative trial, whereas, um, whereas rivaroxaban was a positive trial, but we'll just stick on atrial fibrillation. And this apixaban trial, um, non-inferiority was achieved, superiority was achieved for stroke and systemic thromboembolism, 
less bleeding, less intracranial hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. Before we try and place this into a clinical perspective, I want to ask you one question. What is striking about all three drugs is they all reduced intracranial bleeding. Mm -hmm. And I have heard it proposed that maybe warfarin increases intracranial bleeding through its inhibition of factor seven. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, um, Eichelboom, I think, uh, uh, raised a very interesting hypothesis uh, that the differences between warfarin and some of these novel agents were simply the, the, the differences in the distribution of tissue factor, both in the brain, but also in coronary plaques, atherosclerotic plaques, both the brain and atherosclerotic and plaques. And the placenta. Being, huh? And the placenta, all being very rich in tissue factor. And so the idea with these novel agents is that although they do target factor 10 and thrombin, that maybe when you're in the very specific micro environment of a ruptured plaque or maybe in the micro environment of a beginning hemorrhage in the brain where it's where there's loaded with tissue factor that maybe they're not having uh, enough of a role there they're thereby somehow explaining uh, why warfarin might have a different effect relative to these warfarin, novel agents all right, warfarin inhibits factor 7 and tissue factor needs factor 7 Absolutely. to stop clotting to yep. cause hemostasis yep. that's exactly right so let's take a patient or a group of patients right now in your practice i mean one one thing we we have to accept you can get warfarin for $4 a day at a discount pharmacy, $4 a month. A month, yes. And these drugs are about 250 de depending on your insurance scheme, but it's a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. Patients don't pay for INRs. In insurance pays for that. So patient, patients are interested in how much they're going to be out of pocket. So we're all having to address this all the time, and uh, we are in a new era, and I, and I accept that. Which patients in your practice are you starting on the new agents, and which patients uh, who are on warfarin would you stop for the new agents? Yeah, and let's take economics out of it for out a little of it. bit. Yeah, so that's an excellent First question. question yeah. So um, as I think about the role of some of these novel agents in our clinical practices, the first thing that I would... Uh, suggest that practitioners do is assess the anticoagulation system in their current environment. If they have a great anticoagulation clinic, which has uh, which uh, has great outcomes, meaning uh, excellent time in the therapeutic range, um, low bleeding rates, and low thromboembolic rates, and you have a patient who's considering one or the other. To me, uh, the individual who has access to that great anticoagulation clinic, uh, you know, I don't see a major advantage for them to choose a novel agent. Uh, we have such a, a clinic here, but I think we should also emphasize we do use home INR monitoring, and there's a recent very good meta-analysis in the Lancet that has shown it's very effective. Yeah, and that's been our experience as well. Uh, very low event rates, very high time in the therapeutic range, and I think that's really important. And uh, arguably, if you have a good anticoagulation clinic in your environment, in your uh, region, they ought to be able to tell you what their time in the therapeutic range is uh, for patients uh, with various so INR values. So who would values. you, so given that uh, many patients will still be yeah, it's geographically it's incredibly variable. I mean, what yes. we found in the trials yep. is the time in the therapeutic range is about seventy percent plus in Sweden, and it's forty percent in others. Yep. Which particular patients 
who are on warfarin or about to start warfarin, should we really start thinking about the new agents from the get-go? Yeah. So I think that uh, there are several unique patient populations. So, so beyond um, uh, availability of a good INR clinic in your area, and by the way, a great place to search for that clinic is a website called acforum.org, uh, which shows what clinics are available in your area, and there are a multitude. AC? ACforum. Dot .org and and why I choose uh, and I can't vouch of course for each clinic uh, in that organization but um, if they take this this management seriously they would probably be involved in that forum so that's where I if I if have a patient going right. to their local in, uh, area I suggest that they look on that site so uh, beyond that if you have a patient who has a widely fluctuating INR, despite your best efforts, I think that's an ideal patient who uh, would benefit from a novel agent. I want to add one caveat, though. Mm -hmm. It's why is the INR fluctuating? Yeah, I mean, if the INR is fluctuating because they're not <coughs> taking warfarin, they're better off not taking warfarin than not taking dabigatran because it has a much shorter action. Yeah, that's but, a patient compliance is a big deal. So it's a compliant patient, wide fluctuations. Mm -hmm. The patients that I find that are ideal candidates are those that travel a lot. Yep, they, I think their that's a very good point. Their diet changes a lot. Yep, a very good point, because uh, this these new drugs won't have uh, dietary interactions and, uh, indeed, very few drug-drug interactions. However, there are some drug-drug interactions that you need to be aware of. For patients taking dabigatran, you need to be aware of the P-glycoprotein system, which is a very interesting system in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, the P-glycoprotein system serves to secrete drug back into the lumen of the gastrointestinal tract. And so if you uh, are on drugs uh, that induce the P-glycoprotein system, you can expect... What sort of drugs are those? Um, Amiodarone so, has an interaction with the bigger So drug. the ones that I'm familiar with, uh, so uh, uh, there are amiodarone, dronetarone, um, other drugs that interact with the P-glycoprotein system include uh, the anti-epileptic drugs mm -hmm. and also the antifungals. So P-glycoprotein system, uh, when thinking about drug-drug uh, interactions, of course these are a very limited number of drugs, but you need to think about the P-glycoprotein system, uh, and that's important for, uh, for all of the agents. For the anti-10 uh, agents, uh, you need to be also thinking about CYP3A4 which is a uh, pathway through which they're metabolized in the liver. This is the P uh, this is the, um, the uh, hepatic uh, metabolism pathway, and uh, those can also be impaired, induced, or uh, inhibited by uh, some of these drugs. Now, the nice thing about that is that if a drug induces the P-glycoprotein system, it also induces uh, CYP3A4. If it inhibits the P-glycoprotein system, it inhibits uh, the CYP3A4 so that you don't have to memorize these complicated uh, um, cross-reactions. They either go one way or the other way. And so uh, drugs uh, such as anti-epileptics uh, typically induce the, the system, and they induce both and thereby reduce the circulating level of these drugs, the azoles, the antifungals, uh, inhibit and thereby increase, increase the, levels. the levels. And so uh, although it's unlike warfarin where you have this right. incre incredible list of drug-drug interactions, there are a few that you need to be aware well, of. Just quickly to wrap up, other patients who are really good candidates for the drugs are those where getting an INR is frankly very inconvenient. Yep. Those that are unable to do home INR monitoring. People who travel, people whose levels fluctuate for a number of 
drug interactions. I, I think and, young and individuals too seem young to probably would do uh, may do better on this medication. Yeah, because it is less intracranial hemorrhage. I mean, yep, there's yep. no question about that. And then lastly, one concern, and this will just be our concluding comment. One concern is right now we do not have the ability to reverse uh, bleeding short of dialysis. Um, there's a lot of interest in this area. Do you think? In the next two to three years, we are going to see antidotes to the factor 10As and the direct antithrombins. Yeah, that's a really so bleeding is a really important uh, comment uh, related to these novel agents. And I've always thought that if you have an agent that has no antidote, that time would be an ideal antidote. The problem being that these all have very long half lives. For dabigatran, we're dabigatran told is shorter half life. Uh, dabigatran has a half life of about 17 hours, so actually longer half life than the 10 A's. But dabigatran at this point, uh, there apparently there is an antidote, but I have, an, uh, but it has not yet come to uh, FDA approval. But but w there is an antidote in in nice. um, in mice and and in uh, in production, uh, though not adequately tested. So do you think we'll, we'll see antidotes in three years? For the uh, for the uh, 10A inhibitors, uh, at least for rivaroxaban, there's a very nice paper in circulation which shows that uh, that uh, prothrombin complex concentrates actually can normalize uh, the clotting uh, assays for but patients. What, but on what that. is interesting, and I guess we have to wrap up. But what is interesting, it did for rivaroxaban, but not apixaban. So it may not be one size that fits all. And, and it didn't specifically. It didn't for dabigatran. So, so th this is really a changing landscape and a dynamic landscape, and I think we should have this interview in a year's time. And Absolutely, see how it's really changed. exciting. You know, prior to uh, uh, prior to a year ago or so, we had no or very few uh, possibilities in our in our treatment regimen. Now we have almost too many, and it's a really exciting plus, time. Plus, we have warfarin, which works pretty well. Which works pretty well. In the right hands. Very Thank good. you very much, yeah. Rob. Thank you. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more. <laughs>